know when you when you first meet someone and you shake hands, there's an immediate response and judgment, of course, as well. It's just an instinctual reaction to someone else's body language. That's kind of a microcosm of what conducting is. It's all about trying to convey an emotion, a direction, information with your body language that is as positive and as true to the creator as possible. Marin Olsop is a woman of firsts. One of the greatest conductors of our time, she is the first woman to serve as the head of a major orchestra in the United States, South America, Austria, and the United Kingdom. For 14 years, Marin led the Baltimore Symphony Orchestra, releasing multiple award-winning recordings and conducting more than two dozen world premieres. She also founded Orchids, the orchestra's groundbreaking music education program for disadvantaged children. Now in her third season as chief conductor of the ORF Vienna Radio Symphony Orchestra, Marin is internationally recognized for her innovative approach to programming and as a global champion for music. I'm Emma Sell and I spoke to Marin Alsop on The Big Interview. Marin Alsop, welcome to The Big Interview. I want to start at the beginning. I mean, it sounds like you were essentially born musical. Your parents didn't really give you the choice in the matter, did they? Because both of your parents were musicians in New York. Can we start by discussing those formative years? What do you remember and how did your family life shape you as someone who has this deep passion for music? Well, my parents were both professional musicians, but of course, when you're a little kid, you accept whatever is going on around you. So I assumed that everyone's parents were musicians <laughs> and that music was played and instruments were practiced and people came over to play chamber music. I just sort of assumed that as a kid. It was slowly revealed, you know, as I gained some life experiences that my parents were quite unusual. And this idea of having music be the backdrop to everything one does was quite a blessing and uh, something really special. So my parents, of course, they were absolutely keen, I mean, beyond keen, that I would be a pianist because they wanted to have a piano trio. My father played violin and my mom played cello. And so they needed a pianist. And I'm, I feel pretty confident that's, they decided to make a pianist. So that's why I was born. So I was born with a job, which of course, is wonderful and horrible at the same time. And I started studying piano when I was, I think, really maybe two years old. I mean, I'm really little. I really hated the piano. <laughs> and that was difficult. That was our first our first major conflict and my first real battle with my mom. And when I was six years old, I retired from the piano because she just gave up. You know, she couldn't force me anymore to do it. And it was interesting because while it was a challenging situation, you know, I remember I remember lots of tears and and yelling and stuff, but it was a great life lesson because I learned that there is really an instrument for every child. Because when I ended up playing violin, when I was about six years old, I started violin, I immediately loved it. And it was a different physical relationship to the instrument. I like the sound, the timbre of it. And so it's really informed a lot of my thought process, particularly in relation to educational outreach to young people, that it's super important 
to enable kids to find their instrument. And so, you know, when I started playing the violin, I immediately fell in love with it. My parents were extremely relieved, as you can imagine, <laughs> because they were, they were at wit's end with the piano. But violin was my instrument. And what were you listening to as a child? Was it mostly classical music or were you also a fan of other genres like pop and jazz? Well, I mean, of course, when I was little, I, one doesn't have really much choice. In our house, I heard mostly classical music. But my dad also, besides playing violin and being concertmaster of the New York City Ballet Orchestra, which was a huge, huge job, he was also a saxophone, clarinet and flute player. And he played with many, many big bands, including Fred Waring's big band, he used to go on the road with them. So he loved to play jazz in the house and play along with the records. And my mother and I were always very snobbish about it, like, oh, that's so, so banal. But I think hearing that music and hearing, hearing that whole genre really influenced me because later on in my early 20s, I started a swing band. And that was completely unexpected. And so I think that got in my blood. And then, of course, as I came into my early teens, when, when kids really become aware, I think, of music and want to have their own music. I love pop music. I, you know, in particular, I love the Beatles. Oh, yeah, tell you something. I think you'll understand when I say that something. I want to hold your hand. I want to hold your hand. I want to hold your hand. I thought they were amazing. And I had two posters in my room. One was of the Beatles and the other was Leonard Bernstein. So those were my two main musical influences growing up. It's amazing. I mean, most people spend many, many years trying to figure out what they want to do with their lives. But to know at such a young age is quite remarkable. But as you alluded to, I wanted to ask you about that pivotal moment uh, in the 1960s. And I believe you were about <laughs> nine or 10 when you saw one of the greatest conductors of all time, Leda Bernstein, conducting the New York Philharmonic, I believe. What was that moment like for you? Was it literally that penny drop aha moment? I remember... It, it was almost like a light bulb went off above me. And I, I thought, oh, this is what I'm meant to do. This is what I definitely want to do. I want to be like this person. And so there is born what we now call tonal music, a stable tonal language firmly rooted in the basic notes of the harmonic series the fundamental and its first different overtone, the fifth, now and forevermore to be known as the tonic and the dominant. And that fifth interval really does dominate because once this tonic-dominant relationship is established, it's a field day for composers. And I think I thought, I want to be this person. This is what I want to do with my life. And I can't tell you what the music was that he performed, I can only tell you that it was more of a, a physical sensation, almost like I imagine what it would be like when people have a religious calling. You know, they have a, it was like that for me. And I never, I never changed my mind. It was really interesting. I told my dad, oh, I want to be the conductor. This is really what I want to do. And he said, oh, super, 
great. (laughs) It was interesting because even though I was discouraged along the way, you know, girls can't do that. And you're such a great violinist. You should stick with that. I still, I just kept that idea always with me that this is what I want to be. You must have had such a magnetic presence just imagining that. And yeah, despite the sad reality at the time that there weren't many girls doing that, as if it were fate, you did. You went on to later study with Bernstein. He became your Mm. mentor. Uh, What was that like and what did he teach you about conducting? Well, that was, of course, a dream come true. I I first worked with him at the Schleswig-Holstein Festival in 1987. And there's a little clip on YouTube of our first encounter on Beethoven's Second Symphony. And it was very dear. I really want those faces before the piano each time. Each time, not this and time. This I think not. Well, yes, why I think not, so. Why not all the time? This is such a um, surprise. The beautiful and warm See, you cut off. this off. Yes. Off. Uh, there's a hole. Yes, so we try to this way, there's no hole. Mm-hmm. See if you can do it. Mm-hmm. It's a little hard. I know, a little tricky, huh? Well, you stay here, okay? Also, I, <laughs> I do the... <laughs> and the next summer, I was accepted as a conducting fellow at Tanglewood, and I was chosen to conduct a concert with Leonard Bernstein. And of course, I my main anxiety was that I might have a heart attack and miss it. You know, I was so excited that it was beyond excitement. And then, you know, when he came in the room the first time and he said, now, where's Marin? Where's this Marin? And he looked at me, he said, don't I know you? It was really funny. And I didn't want him to remember because he hadn't chosen me to conduct at the last outing. And so I just shrugged my shoulders. But of course, as it turned out, he, he remembered me the whole time. It was really funny. And we had some good laughs about it. But that first encounter at Tanglewood was very special. You know, there are hundreds of people there. He was such a celebrity and lots of photographers and journalists and TV and As soon as he started working with me, everyone disappeared. I felt absolutely no nerves. I felt only connected to this person. He was so warm. He was so generous. He was so sharing of information, so encouraging. And he gave me a lesson for about an hour and a half. And then he handed me his score to take home. And I thought, oh, you know... I'm going to be mugged in some steal this. You know, I was, I was, you know, holding it close to my heart, and I think I slept with it under the pillow. I mean, it was, it was magical, is all I can say. You know, he was the consummate musician. What a great musician! What a humanitarian! And I learned from him on all of these different levels. And I watched, I think, one of the great citizens of the world in action. And It helped me, I think, formulate what kind of life I wanted to live. Not just what kind of musician, what kind of conductor I wanted to be, but what kind of human being I wanted to be. Wow, that's incredible. It must have been amazing to have that kind of mentor in life and also to give you guidance on your profession. Um, But just to follow up on um, just that 
what he taught you about the role of the conductor. I mean, when I when I watch your performances, I'm I'm quite amazed by the the physicality of your performances. And to be completely honest, I'm someone who knows next to nothing about conducting, <laughs> and so I actually have no idea what you're doing. But I feel it. I, I don't know how to describe it. There's an embodied mm, experience there. Nice. Would you mind just breaking it down for us? Because the conductor is oddly the only member of the orchestra that doesn't play a note. Yeah, I mean, that's the sort of magical aspect of it, that somehow with our body language and with our gesture, we need to inspire these musicians to be the best they can be. We need to convey to them what the composer's intent was. We need to convey the quality of sound, the sound world that we want them to inhabit. For non-musicians, I'm trying to think, you know, when you when you first meet someone and you shake hands, there's an immediate response and judgment, of course, as well. You think, oh, this is someone I like, or, oh, this is someone who's a little bit dangerous. And, you know, you're formulating, constantly formulating these opinions and thoughts, whether you want to or not, it's just an instinctual reaction to someone else's body language. That's kind of a microcosm of what conducting is. It's all about trying to convey an emotion, a direction, information with your body language that is as positive and as true to the creator as possible. It's an amazing thing because even if you're not a trained musician, you could sit with me and watch and listen to, say, five young conductors conduct the same piece with the same orchestra, and you could hear the difference. And it's just fascinating, absolutely fascinating. You know, some people immediately have a beautiful sound with the orchestra. How is that possible? Some people have to work hard at it. You know, I mean, of course, there are things we all have to work hard at, but it's an absolutely fascinating aspect of conducting. It's a, a bit of a metaphor for who one is as a human being. It sort of seems that there's a lot of leadership involved as well. I will talk a bit about the work that you've done with various ensembles that you're closely associated with. But I wanted to ask you about String Fever, which you mentioned uh, just a bit earlier. This was your an all-women's string band you founded uh, in the 1980s. What was this all about? I thought maybe classical music was going to be too buttoned down for me, you know, a little bit too, too rule-oriented, you know, don't clap, don't smile, don't move, don't, you know, too many don'ts. And so I had this thought that maybe I could be a, a rock and roll musician. So this is how this sort of started. And then I couldn't find anybody that wanted to write rock and roll for a, a string band because I knew only, you know, my best friends were string players. So that's what I wanted to do. And then I did a commercial for, I think it was a, a sports channel and I really liked the arranger. I thought he was great, Gary Anderson. And so we started hanging out and getting to know each other. And I told him about this dream I had about creating this rock and roll string group. And he said, well, you know, I don't know anything about rock and roll, but I played with Woody Herman's big band for many years, saxophone, and I can write you some swing music. So I didn't really know. I said, okay, sure, that sounds great. And this is how it started. I mean, not one of us knew a thing about swing music. I mean, we did not even know how to swing. You know, swing music, when you play swing, you actually have to swing the notes. You can't read what's on the page. Otherwise, 
it sounds awful, very square. Anyway, when Gary came to the first rehearsal, he was laughing so hard. I mean, I wish I had a video of that. He just thought this was the funniest thing, all of us trying to play this swing music without knowing how to swing. And anyway, all my friends said, oh, you're crazy. This is a waste of time. And I said, no, 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 come on, you guys, let's try. And so we started rehearsing every day after our gigs, like 11 o'clock at night. And we'd listen to big bands and we'd go to jazz concerts. And we actually started getting a feel for the swing. Of course, in those days, this was in the 80s. Nobody really was doing this kind of crossover. And so then I decided we needed to get a gig at a jazz club. So I went to every jazz club in New York. I'd never even been in a jazz club. And I found one that was run and managed by a woman. And she said, okay, sure, come on, let's try it. Anyway, we started playing in this tiny jazz club, all 14 of us, you know, squished on a little postage stamp stage. And people went crazy. violins, three violas, three cellos, bass and drums make up string fever. They're classically trained musicians who've broken through the confines of their structured classical educations and jumped wholeheartedly into swing, blues, jazz, disco, rock, salsa, you name it, they play it. Carrying through the group's philosophy, let's make music and let's have fun. People started, composers, arrangers started coming, started writing for us. You know, it just kind of, it just started happening from there. And I fell in love, really deeply in love with particularly American swing music. That's fantastic. And I love that you weren't afraid to to cross those boundaries between the different musical genres from Beethoven to swing. And that's fantastic. It's also significant <laughs> that uh, it was an all-women group. And I mean, I, mm-hmm. I'm sure you get asked this a lot because you are a woman of first. You're the first woman to serve as head of a major orchestra in the US, South America, Austria, and the UK, I believe. Does this feel really strange, knowing that you've broken glass ceilings for women in classical music? No, it doesn't feel strange. I mean, I'm honored. I'm proud of it. But it's also kind of a sad testament on our society that it's taken so long for some of these firsts to happen. The fact that there can still be firsts in the 21st century for women. Hopefully we can really push the envelope now, now that doors are a little more open, people are a little bit more receptive. I, You know, I want to try to push past this idea of there being firsts so that women have opportunities that they didn't have. But it's a happy responsibility for me. It doesn't feel like a burden at all. I like to try to share what I've learned with up and coming generations of conductors and women in particular. So, you know, I think it's been, for me, it, it, it's been really a um, a joy in many ways. How tough was it? Because when we're, we're talking about your career now, and it just sounds like, you know, we make it sound so easy and smooth sailing, but of course it wasn't. And it's a tough business. You faced a lot of rejection throughout your career. Mm-hmm. Were there moments when you just thought, man, this is too hard? Or did that just mm-hmm. add fuel to your fire? Oh, I definitely had days where I thought, oh, I'm, I can't, I'm not going to survive this. I can't endure it. But those days were shorter in duration than the days when I 
felt spurred on. And the thing to know, though, is that becoming a conductor for most people is a road that's paved with enormous rejection. It's like acting, you know, you have to not only be expert at what you do, but you also have to have some luck. You have to be in the right place at the right time or have take the right audition at the right moment. You know, there's so many factors that play into the creation of, of a successful career. I would say that all young conductors struggle with the sense of rejection and a questioning, I think, of whether they will be able to succeed. So I don't think it's specific to was specific to me. Although, of course, I think I had that added aspect of being one of the first women that was trying to push through toward the top of the career. So I think that was an added challenge, but certainly not a singular challenge. Well, let's chat a bit about your time as music director of the Baltimore Symphony Orchestra. If I have my facts right, I think you held this very prestigious position for 14 years. Can you tell us about some of the high points from this time? Did you have the freedom to experiment with your programming? Yes. You know what I I especially loved about my tenure with the Baltimore Symphony was that while it's one of the major U.S. orchestras, there are 15 of them. It's It's not an orchestra that's entrenched deeply in tradition that's immovable. It's an orchestra that's willing to take some chances in a city where you can really make a difference. So I think it was the perfect partnership for me because I really wanted to experiment with outreach, creating connections for the orchestra with the community in terms of audience development, And in terms of programming, as I developed a trust with my audience, and I like to speak at the concerts particularly about new pieces, new music, many of my listeners said, well, why can't you talk about the old pieces too? We want to hear something about that. So I started a series called Off the Cuff, where I would take the piece apart for the audience with the orchestra on stage, doing examples with them, and then put it back together and perform the piece in its entirety. I wanted to play for you um, a tune that uh, hit the number one charts in America um, in the 1970s. Uh, it, was, it was by a songwriter named Eric Carmen. So now you're, now you're going to really be shocked. Here we go. And this was a hugely popular series. People loved it, you know, not just not just people who weren't versed in classical music, but even classical music aficionados. So things like that, I was able to bring Bernstein's Mass, which is an enormous piece, back into the repertoire. We recorded it. So I think in many ways it was the best situation for me because it had flexibility. It had a situation that was open to trying new things. I mean, 
sometimes it didn't feel that way, but in the end, everybody came on board and the audiences grew and the orchestra gained quite a reputation, you know, for being a diverse and flexible ensemble. You're now in your fourth season as chief conductor of the Vienna Radio Symphony. And to end the season, you'll be launching a global concert series to mark the 20th anniversary of the Taki Alsop Conducting Fellowship, which you, I believe, founded to promote gender equality in music. Mm -hmm. What can you tell us about this fellowship and why did you start it? And what can we expect from this tour? It really was prompted by a non-musical mentor of mine named Tomio Taki, and he helped support my early endeavors with my first orchestra. When we ended that organization 18 years after we started it, he said to me, well, look, we've accomplished what we set out to do. You know, you're now, you know, quite successful and there people see a woman on the podium. And he said to me, but what about all the other women? And it was really a revelation for me to think about it, that who is going to try to change the landscape for the future if I don't try. So I started this fellowship really out of a desire to create opportunities where women, aspiring women conductors, could take risks. And I could protect them a little bit. And that's really how it started. And these 20 years later, we've had 30 recipients and 19 are music directors. They're from worldwide, you know, all over the world. And this year, thanks to a sponsor, we are doing a 10 concert global series with different Takis, Taki fellows, we call them, around the globe, conducting the music of one of the pieces on every program is by Anna Klein, British composer, and features Inbal Segev, who is an Israeli cellist. So, People attending these concerts will see a woman on the podium leading. They will see a woman as the soloist, and they will hear a piece by a woman composer. I think, especially today, as we see women's rights being curtailed instead of really expanded, I think it's very, very important that we support efforts like this. That's fantastic. Naren, you're a champion for women in music, but you're also well known for being a champion for living composers. So tell me, why is it so important to you to perform the work of living composers? And what is what is that relationship between a conductor and a composer like? It's so important that I stay connected to the creator, you know, because my job is always to be the messenger of the creator, of the composer. And the more I can understand the motivation, the inspiration, the context that inspired the composer to write each note, the better messenger I will be. So working with living composers gives me insight into the process. Of course, the process is different for each composer, but that's also helpful to understand. I love working on music of our time because it reflects the world we live in whether it's the issues around COVID or the current conflict and, and, and issues around diversity or the war, this heartbreaking war that's going on, composers are writing music in response to that, as all artists are creating art in response. And it's so important to experience that and be part of that process because it then inevitably gives us insight into why Beethoven wrote his symphonies and what was motivating him. So 
All of these experiences, I think, are hugely illuminating for a conductor. It's a wonderful thing, and I love that you advocate for young composers. Another theme in your career, which I love, is is your ability to take classical, kind of old guard pieces of music, but you give them a fresh twist, like in your performance, Too Hot to Handle, where you recreated Handel's Messiah, I think, with hints of jazz and was it gospel? Talk to me about this. How do you go about performing these types of pieces, but doing it in such a fresh way while at the same time kind of staying true to the original's DNA, if that makes sense. Yeah, well, I'm glad you asked about uh, the Too Hot to Handle because that was really a journey piece. And it's going to celebrate, believe it or not, its 30th anniversary next year. And it was really born out of a funny encounter I had with someone where I said, oh, I'm playing um, Handel's Messiah, do you want to come? And the person said, who was a non-music person, said, well, you know, I I really like that part when you stand up, but it takes too long to get to that part. And I thought, this is so interesting because audiences today, that was 30 years ago, are not able to really relate to this music. And I started thinking about Handel. You know, Mozart updated Handel's Messiah. And of course, as part of Handel's experience, he would have embellished and improvised and added things. So I thought, why not look at this in an updated way? And of course, the Hallelujah Chorus just lends itself beautifully to a gospel rendition. And so I got together with two arranger friends, one being Gary Anderson, who helped me start String Fever, and the other Bob Christensen. And they thought I was crazy, of course. And I said, listen, let's sit down and go through it. I want to keep the fundamental DNA the same But let's look at how we could kind of update it. And that's exactly what happened. They split up the arrangements. And I I gave them some ideas about, you know, how about if this is a shuffle or how about if this is more of a jazz waltz? And they did an incredible job. It's so much fun. I mean, if you're a real purist, it might be slightly offensive. But I think if you're someone who's willing to have a good time and let music evolve, it's a great experience. You know, there are people dancing in the aisles in this. And I guess that's what I always wanted for classical music, to see the audience up and engaged. And just finally then... Is there a project in the works that you just can't wait to reveal? Or better yet, is there a composer that you're dying to work with? Oh, gosh, that's a great question. Well, I'm super, super excited about a project I'm going to be doing with a piece by my dear friend John Adams, whose music I adore and I've recorded a lot. I can't quite tell you what it is, though, because, you know, then they'll have to kill me probably. But uh, I'm looking forward to that. And You know, I have to say that every month as I look at my calendar and and prepare, I am fortunate to have programs and interactions with guest artists, orchestras, and composers who are inspiring beyond words. So I hope your listeners, wherever you are in the world, come and, you know, check on my website and please come and join me. 
Marin Alsip, thank you very much for joining me here on The Big Interview. That's it for this edition of The Big Interview. Thanks to our editor, Jack Dewars, and our researcher, Townsend Howard. From me, Emma Searle, thanks very much for listening. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.